This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now. So listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Obergruppenführer edition. It's Wednesday, November 25th, 2015. On today's show, Spotlight is the new and very Oscar-contending movie that tells the true story of the Boston Globe's investigation into the Catholic Church and its cover-up of child sex abuse. And then... What if the Axis powers had won the Second World War? The Man in the High Castle is the new alt-history thriller from Amazon TV. And finally, the strange love affair between a child of America's most intolerant and cruel hate church and social media. We discuss the remarkable New Yorker story, Conversion via Twitter, with its author, Adrian Chen. Joining me today is uh, the culture editor of Slate, Dan Coyce. Dan, you're filling in for Dana Stevens. Those are small shoes. Literally, but massive shoes, figuratively. How will you choose uh, it, to fill them? It was sort of a coup. I sent Dana off to see a couple of screenings this morning and then write about them because it is big movie season. And in exchange, I got to steal her spot on the Culture Gab Fest. Are you wearing flip-flops? Never. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Then it's a coup by loyalists. Yeah. You all about Eve Dur, I got it. Um, and Slate's editor is Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. I noticed I got demoted from my top slot today. Usually I get first billing. Suddenly we have a man. I'm an exciting and special guest, We have a man as a guest. (laughs) So I'm just the highest ranking woman on the show. But then as soon as we get some Y chromosomes up in this piece... I got introduced second. The the title of this episode is Obergruppenführer, Julia. And I think we all know who that is for Slate.com. All right. I'll accept my Nazi Um, comparison grudgingly. Jesus. (laughs) What, uh, what, do we have any business to deal with before we start the show? Actually, the one bit of business that I have is uh, to describe the contents of our Slate Plus segment, in which we will discuss what kind of terrible Thanksgiving guest are you? We'll go around and discuss Thanksgiving types uh, and what makes the holiday delightful and detestable in various measures. All right, Steve, let's commence. 
All right, moving on. Spotlight tells the story of the small band of Boston Globe reporters who brought to light the extent of sexual abuse at the hands of Boston's priests and uh, blew open the cover-up by the Boston Archdiocese. It stars Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, Stanley Tucci. I'm not including everybody. It's a remarkable cast. They all brought their A-games. We'll get into that in a second. It's directed by Tom McCarthy. Let's listen to a clip. Well, I had to know. That's why he had the reaction. He knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story. But the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do. Indicate. Are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... We'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. Sounds like we're going after law. Uh, Dan, let me start with you. It's. Um, uh, would you agree with me that it's almost impossible to take any 15 to 30 second clip from this movie and convey just how gripping it is? Yes, I, w- I would agree totality. with that. Yeah, well, so much of the movie is about the long, slow, systematic process of performing journalism, of interviewing, of cultivating and interviewing sources, of digging through records, um, of confirming sources. There's a long and exciting by the standards of this movie scene toward the end, which simply consists of the patient and difficult process of getting someone to be your confirmation, your second confirmation. Uh, And as a result of that, the effect of the movie, I think, is cumulative. Over the course of the movie, the accretion of detail and work by these characters and the, uh, the amount that they care about the story helps you understand not just sort of its visceral import. You get that it is important to right this wrong and expose this injustice. But also the accretion of detail over the course of the movie helps you understand just how much heart and soul and passion went into these characters who you grow to like and appreciate uh, to get this story and to and to tell it to their community and, and the people that they love and know. And I found that moving and interesting, but I also agree that in any given scene, it tends to be people talking about boring things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the point that, which was the point I wanted to make exactly. I mean, I found this movie kind of, in some ways, Julia, flawless. I loved it from beginning to end. The performances are beautiful for being understated is almost an understatement. I mean, there's an attempt to really be mimetically faithful to what it's like to be a serious journalist. There are no long speeches. There's no grandstanding. There are scarcely any long, deep, meaningful stares. It's done so straight, but that doesn't convey what about it is so uh, moving and gripping. Well, it's the unsorkin, right? It's the opposite of the sorkin version of the story, right? Where there would be a lot of pontificating and pacing and... Walk and talks. Yeah. Isn't that just a fun alternate history to God, did we dodge a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he was like chasing after jobs and his his weird family drama. And he didn't set his sights on this story. 
I should be recused from this segment. My parents both worked at the Boston Globe. Walter Robinson, the character played by Michael Keaton, is like an old family friend who plays golf with my dad. Watching this movie was like watching a thriller about my profession that took place in my childhood. Like, I learned to drive in that parking lot. There really was a little <laughs> shop that that sold, like, that was like basically just a tiny closet full of snacks where I used to get chocolate milk every time I went to that building. You know, there were some exteriors that were real. I, I, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you guys found this as thrilling as I did because I was a little concerned I was having a personal response to what felt like virtual reality, kind of. Like, it felt I was very immersed in this world. But I also think I'm so glad this movie was made. Like, this movie didn't necessarily need to be made, but it really, it's a very complicated process portrait of a story whose moral tenor is not that complicated, right? Which is that journalism has an important play to role in holding powerful people to account. And sometimes journalists, given the right resources with the right skills and the right instincts, can do incredible work that creates incredible change in the world. And the most powerful part of the movie comes at the end when they've they've published the story, they begin to get a sense of all of the victims who they had not discovered, who start to call in and share their tales. And then there are a few just screens full of places where similar scandals and similar cover-ups took place. And it's four full screens. It's, you know, probably more than 100 American cities and then more than 100 additional places throughout the world. And it's stunning. And one of the things that you that the that the movie takes care to point out is that it's not as though the journalists got this right all along either. This is a story that had been hiding in plain sight in Boston for many years, a story that the Globe itself had covered fragments of from time to time. There's even a moment where um, it becomes clear that Walter Robinson himself had been the editor of a section that had published a small fragment of a story on an interior page suggesting that there had been allegations of abuse by 20 priests. And the the choice of where to point your attention as a journalist and where to point your, point your resources as a journalist is is a crucial one. And not, and, and the, the movie is stronger for the fact that it doesn't portray the journalists as fist-shaking heroes who always knew the right thing mm-hmm. to do. They sort of stumble onto the size and scope of the story. And part of the horror they uncover is their institution's own complicitness in the set of relationships throughout the city that allowed it to go ignored for so long. I want to say I just I love, love, loved this movie. It, along with Ex Machina, they're my two favorite films of the year by far. I really hope this gets Oscar love. What I loved about it is that the movie is old-fashioned, I think, in two senses. The first is just a th- obvious thematic sense, which is that it, it glorifies old print journalism. There's actually a shot in this movie that you used to see a lot in journalism movies of the story finally making it to print and the presses rolling it out and it being thumped on the doorsteps of a large American municipality and something that was private and shameful and malfeasant becomes uh, public in that moment. The word Craigslist does appear once in this movie. Craigslist came along and completely cleaned out the um, classified advertising business for, for businesses of American newspapers, which destroyed their business model. It's not made a big deal of. It's not sorkinized in this movie, but it's certainly there that the business model might be disappearing. This could 
could be a story of heroic obsolescence. The second way in which I found the movie old-fashioned um, is that you feel as though you are eavesdropping on the actual conversations of actual adults in positions of actual power. The actors do no grandstanding in this movie at all. It is an absolutely perfect ensemble piece. Stanley Tucci has the closest thing to a scenery-chewing part, and he doesn't chew an ounce of scenery. It's all it's Maybe all beautifully done to the... <laughs> All right, an ounce, but I mean it's it's relative to what you would typically find in a in a Hollywood picture. It's nothing. I mean, it's really about large, powerful institutions. In this instance, the Boston Archdiocese, the Boston Catholic Church, and the Boston Globe coming into conflict with one another. And to believe that and feel as though it's consequential, you have to feel as though seniority is an actual meaningful fact in the world, that people started out in these institutions as very young people, in some cases children, and stayed with them their entire lives and take them extremely seriously. This isn't a movie about permanent juveniles acting as free agents within a freelance society at all. And um, in that sense, it was a throwback. And uh, just I just think an incredibly powerful work of, of, of filmmaking. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And the questions about the economic model underlie the film, but but don't um, overstep the, the power of the story itself. One interesting point that Walter Robinson made in an interview for Slate was that he actually doesn't think of this story as the last great story of the print journalism era, but as one of the first stories of the internet journalism era. And he says that the mm. the, the ability, the, the massive number of follow-on stories that they did and their ability to find more victims and more perpetrators in the wake of the initial piece they published was deeply dependent on their ability to distribute some of the primary documents on the web, to disseminate information that way, to to network with potential sources that way, which I which was surprising to me and I thought was fascinating. I have a a possibly heretical question to ask you. Hit it. I know you guys didn't find this movie boring. <laughs> but do you think that normal people might find this movie boring? I'm so interested. I mean, I, you know, I went and saw a show last night and it was in the teensiest theater at the multiplex, but it was completely packed uh, apart from mm-hmm. one one old man who was insisting on taking up three seats. And I got really mad at him, even though he was an old man with a cane. But he lied to me and said his wife was sitting in both of his seats in any event. But it was... Julie, you got to investigate what kinds of institutions allow him to exercise that kind of power. I was like, why Is the I... theater allowing this kind of activity? And is it a real problem spreading across theaters I across America? I was so mad at him. <laughs> anyway... Um, I had that question as well. Am I only interested in this because it is like a dreamscape of my childhood made real? Or am I only interested in this because it is about one of the most triumphant moments of the profession that my parents practiced and that I now practice? Or is this just an interesting movie? And I would not undersell the fact that the stakes could not be higher. It is like the rape of children being covered up by one of the most historically powerful institutions in the history of the world and kind of being sinisterly allowed to persist. So the villain is really good. Like the villain is not the encroachments of Craigslist. The villain is like a straight up villainy and villainy that is portrayed in a way that gets to a really interesting question and actually a question that Man in the High Castle, uh, which we'll talk about, fails to ask, but which is how does villainy persist? And what are the forces that allow villainy to persist? And they're not 
like a bunch of cackling henchmen necessarily. It's a lot of quiet, subdued, bureaucratic cogs in a machine doing their small part and failing to think about the moral consequences of their actions in the real ways or in the right ways. And that's like, I don't know, that's a timeless story. That's a human story. I maybe maybe I'm crazy to think that this is a story that would be interesting to people beyond journalists. But to me, it's a both a morally clear story in a, that it's about a battle between a very clear good and a very clear evil, but also a morally sophisticated story about the processes that allow evil to persist and the mechanisms that can combat it. And I think the combination of high stakes and unprecedented moral mm-hmm. sophistication bear out. Am I crazy? Uh-huh. You know what, though? I, well, no, but I think Dan's point is well taken that in 2015, a movie like this is almost by necessity going to be a niche product. The question is, how big is the niche? Um, you know, how do you define normal, Dan? And vis-a-vis that, how do you define success? It, does it? Uh, hopefully it earns out on its budget and makes enough of a profit that people are encouraged to make more such movies. Is it going to, is it going to release wide and uh, make uh, even $50 million uh, um, unlikely, which is sad because the, when, you know, All the President's Men was a very similar process movie. It was probably more glamorized. And of course, it touched upon a recent event in American history that is arguably the biggest constitutional crisis we've ever faced. So maybe the comp isn't a fair one. But, um, you know, a movie like that could go wide and could be a huge hit and uh, could be taken seriously for, for years to come. And hopefully this one might, too. I don't know spotlight uh it's coming to a theater near you check it out and tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culture fest all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor julia turner what do we have we are sponsored today by prudential's 4040 vision today's 40 somethings are charting their own courses sometimes by choice but many times out of necessity caring for aging parents starting new careers midlife juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 Vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. What if the United States of America had lost World War II and had been partitioned by the Axis powers? This is the premise of the new Amazon Studios show, The Man in the High Castle. It's uh, executive produced by Ridley Scott, and it's based on a Philip K. Dick novel. We'll get into how faithful and unfaithful an adaptation this is with Laura Miller, book and culture critic for Slate.com. Laura, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you back. Let's, uh, before we dig in, let's listen to a clip. The Fuhrer's health is poor, and Goebbels and Himmler are juggling for power. Neither seeks peace. They deny it in public, but both men think the petition of the Americas was a mistake. They've dropped a bomb before, and they won't hesitate to drop it again. Then there will be war. Once the Fuhrer dies, Without question. And this city would be one of the first ones to be erased from the map. What are you so gloomy about, Mr. Tagomi? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is America in 1962. It's lost World War II. It's carved up by imperial powers. There's a resistance. 
Uh, this is also High Concept Gourmet Streaming TV in 2015. Laura Miller, what, uh, what did you make of the show, especially in, uh, in light of the novel, which I know you admire? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a huge challenge to try to bring this novel to the screen because it's a novel about resignation. I mean, in the novel, there's, there's no resistance to these occupations really at all, except for this weird guy writing alternate histories in Colorado. And uh, the characters are pretty passive. But that's kind of one of the things that gives the novel its its magic or its, its uh, the weird spell that it casts. Well, I was really impressed with how well this was mounted, how amazing it looked, and the effect of seeing America Nazified or occupied by the Japanese, just the weird visceral effect, uh, effect of seeing your native country occupied by a foreign power in all the little and the big ways. That was that was powerful. I, I still think the show is struggling with the fact that the sort of the most of the main characters are just not that interesting and seem mm-hmm. sort of murkily motivated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we agree on this. It's sumptuous, it's eerie, it's thought-provoking, but the characters are maybe a little thin. Uh, it's kind of the anti-spotlight, if you think about it. But talk a little bit more about, about Philip K. Dick, his his uh, legacy in film, which is quite extensive. I mean, obviously, his contributions to sci-fi are, are, are huge, printed you know, in, in terms of novels and short stories. But talk about the history of bringing uh, Philip K. Dick to the screen. The classic Dickian move is a a plot development where a character suddenly realizes that whatever identity that he or she thought was his, whatever history or past or self that he thought he had, is actually fake, or that the world that he's living in is not real, that some false substitute has been put in place, and that some other reality has suddenly burst onto the scene or revealed itself and now he has to figure out what to do. It's a it's your kind of classic mind-blowing scenario. And mm. in Blade Runner, which is one of is probably the most famous dick adaptation, it's, you know, am I a person or am I a replicant? Do I there's there's a character who has all these memories but they aren't really her memories or they aren't really real memories. She's actually a robot that has had these memories implanted. And as it's a similar device in in Total Recall. Uh, you are not who you think you are. The reality that you're living in is not the real reality. Or maybe there is no real reality. Um, he was really strongly influenced by um, both these weird esoteric Western traditions like Gnosticism, and then also, this is a big theme in the in the book, The Man in the High Castle, the I Ching and the idea of randomness and chance. And in the novel, almost all of the characters use the I Ching to decide what to do. And in fact, Philip K. Dick used the I Ching to write the book. Every time one of the characters cast the... Um, the hexagrams, he did as well, and he decided where the book was going to go from there on the basis of the results that he got to that. So it's a, you know, he he didn't really operate by the the precepts of, um, you know, most pop culture, but there was this moment in the 80s and the 90s when there was something about the idea of a false self or a false reality, or you not you aren't really who you think you are, that just captivated people, and it, and and we've never really lost it since then. I mean, 
And that's partly because it makes an amazing twist. So the twist that everybody is really dead or the twist that all of the characters are really parts of a split personality or something, you know, like that kind of twist is a very Dickian move. You're all living in a TV show. You're all part of the Matrix. You're all right. Right. Well, one of the points you make in your piece, Laura, which is up on Slate about Man in the High Castle and Philip K. Dick and the series is that since Total Recall and Blade Runner, what we've seen is not just a sort of boom in the actual adaptations of Philip K. Dick works in popular culture, but a boom in works that are clearly derived from the things that obsessed him and captivated him. As you say in the piece, these sort of quintessentially Dickian concepts. And as Julia referred to, things like The Truman Show or The Matrix or Memento, which, as you point out, in your story, those could well be Philip K. Dick's stories. They take that idea of a of lifting the veil off someone's eyes to show him the world, uh, that the world he has known has been a lie. And they make those the sort of animating force. But as you also point out, it's easy in a, in a big Hollywood entertainment, whether a movie or a 10-episode Netflix series, for that reveal when it happens to play simply as a, like a whoa totally awesome (laughs) moment as opposed to how Philip K. Dick viewed it, which is as sort of symptomatic of our modern life. Yeah. Or of the human condition. I mean, you know, there, he was very taken with this idea of acceptance. And so in the man in the high castle, the Japanese occupation of the Western United States is kind of presented as an improvement. he was very intensely interested in Asian culture and the idea of this kind of adaptation or acceptance that he thought of as being more particularly Chinese. And so, you know, he, he, and he saw the Nazis as obviously the bad guys as they are in this, but not really, he didn't really see the Americans as being, as having sort of the best way of life, which is a you know, a weird thing for American popular culture to try to reckon with. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think these ideas around Dick's work are so fascinating. And it's one thing that's a little confusing about the series when you start it. uh, And I've watched the first, I think, four episodes, is that the world, the fictional world that's being created is so fascinating and compelling. And it's very beautifully production design. One of my favorite details is when one of the characters is at a public phone booth in the mid in the Rockies, just the physical design of the phone booth looks super German or Asian or something. It just isn't the way we design phone booths here. It looks (laughs) like something you'd find in like a train station somewhere else. Um, And there's lots of little teensy touches like that that are really lovely. But the notion that this alternate world is, I I guess it's the opposite reveal of the reveal you're talking about. The world that is normal and is your own is false, is a one kind of woe. But to, to double back and have it and invest a lot of time and energy creating this world that is so fascinatingly alien and so clearly not your own world as the viewer, and then to to uh, dangle the possibility as this this show does through the notion of a film that reveals the alternate history of World War II, one in which the Allies won, um, and I guess in the book it's a text that people read that's an alternate history. It's a less intriguing possibility, right? It's like to 
the fascinating fake world that you're that's the whole point of being in the show, especially yeah. in a show with lead characters as wooden as this. If the if the reveal that's being dangled is like maybe but maybe this is all just fake and it and the real thing happened and they're in some other place or what you know, like you don't quite know what's going on with the film, but it's a strange it's a strangely uncaptivating possibility because you're like, No, the thing that's interesting about this show is being in the reality that the show has created. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The show seems to be making some kind of argument that the the possible happy ending to this series would be the undoing of everything that's interesting about the series. Yes, exactly. And I found the show to be just a fascinating, like I'm into it. I'm going to keep watching it because the little details and touches are so fascinating and just the kind of mental experiment of like, oh, I guess there would be monorails in the East if the Nazis ran it. And <laughs> oh, I guess, and I guess that's what San Francisco would be like if it were, you know, entirely overtaken by Japanese culture. You still get Rock Hudson, though. And <laughs> you still get Rock Hudson. But it's this funny show. It's not a show I feel great about being excited about watching because the leads are just very pretty dunces. Like, they're just they're just kind of walking around, batting their eyelashes at each other and trying to... to uh, enact weird plots in the middle well, of it. Well, they're wrapped up in a in a very conventional rebellion plot, which was not, as Laura points out in her piece, which was not the point of the book. The point of the book was in what one of the points of the book was to point out how in a in a in an occupation in an occupied society, the vast majority of people simply adapt their lives and mold their lives to the strictures of that society. And just as in any other society, their fate hinges more on how privileged or not privileged they are within that society. And they just deal with it. They do not rebel. They do not fight back. But so Netflix to make this into an exciting TV series with guns and, and bounty hunters and stuff, they had, they felt they needed to create a resistance plot, a, an active resistance plot, which then necessitates hot young actors to be the resistors, which then necessitates a bunch of boring plots where uh, an amoral bounty hunter is hunting them through the streets because every show needs like an Anton Chigurh they, character. They drove that truck backwards so fast. <laughs> it, was it was so really exciting. exciting. Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, but but it's too much to expect that Amazon would spend all this money to create like a moody uh, investigation of post-colonial society, but that but it does i do feel a real lack of even a, a hint of that sense of the people who are just making their way and laura one of the things that was heartening about your piece is it suggests that this one signature scene from the novel yeah uh with a signature character who hasn't even appeared yet in the episodes i've seen makes its way into the book and does tell that story yeah you do see this a little bit he's a guy and you know part one of the sort of weird ironies of the story is that the sort of Americana that we think of as part of our culture is this sort of quaint, sort of ethnic, indigenous artifacts, the way that people collect, you know, Indian blankets now. They they collect Colt 45s and Civil Occidentalism War or something. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Japanese are all fascinated with, you know, American jazz and they 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 try to cook authentic american food and, and, and by going to little shops down on in the kind of slightly seedy part of town so they can get the authentic ingredients i mean it's just like all of the sort of patronizing ways that your culture can be sort of adapted as a hobby of the occupying culture is imposed on 
the Americans, and they sort of have to cope with that, and they wind up selling all of these artifacts. And so this character, this dealer does sort of turn up later on in the in the in the series which I was very happy to see but it's very difficult for even a really well executed scene which is a scene where he goes to uh, have dinner with this married couple who seem like they're going to be big customers of his and he wants to be seen as a you know he's thrilled because he's going to be socializing with a Japanese couple and the the young ones are so liberal minded they might treat him like a social equal and he's worried that he's going to do something wrong and it just reminded me so much of uh, the sort of post-colonial literature of India and other cultures that were occupied by the British, the way that British culture becomes this weird overlay and makes people feel insecure about the culture of their native land and, you know, wanting to fit in and be accepted or valued, but then feeling like you have to sort of renounce your own culture. And the weird mix of sort of, um, you know, hope and, and sort of groveling and then resentment that that causes is so incredibly well depicted in this novel and is the thing that I've always come away from it feeling most strongly. And they they do make an effort to do that, but so much of that is internal. It's kind of hard to portray on the, on the screen. I mean, one thing that's funny about the show just as a viewing experience is that part of the intentional frisson of it is the juxtaposition of you know, the America you know visually with all of these other political, philosophical, and visual concepts, many of which are horrifying. So that's this intentional juxtaposition. But then there's this unintentional juxtaposition between the deep sophistication of the ideas, which are interesting to explore through the prose of Philip K. Dick or, you know, the other Nazi alternate history that I've read as the Philip uh, Roth, The Plot Against America, which is a pretty similar concept deployed differently. Um, but, but, but the show's just so unsophisticated. It's like just going to all this trouble to build this very sophisticated world and to play with these very sophisticated ideas and then just put this like shoot 'em up Western like (laughs) action, which like is, which I'm also compelled by. Like, so my viewing experience is like the part of me that wants to keep watching this is like the how to get away with murder fan that's compelled by moronic plots um, and yet the thing that's actually interesting about the show is not the thing. Like, it's filling me with complicated self-loathing. So maybe it's Your like a... Your lizard hindbrain wants to keep watching the show. <laughs> maybe, but. like, that's what they're going for. It's just trying to get me to challenge my own... Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it no, is. No, I think that they I think that they legitimately are uh, don't know how to handle this material that well. I mean, I think you can see it even in the promotion. Have you guys ridden the Nazi subway in New York yet? I have not, but my fucking God, what a terrible fucking idea. So listeners may not know, but in in New York City, as a promotion for this, they kitted out. It was a seven train or an S, a shuttle. It's one of those cross-town trains that they made. The S shuttle. They kitted it out in like Nazi regalia, just so it would be like, this is what the train would be like if the Nazis had won. But so then they're just basically asking New Yorkers to get in a train filled with swastikas and ride it. I, mean, I don't you, think there are swastikas. You don't want to do that. There's I think not there's, swastikas. Oh, there's just like Nazi eagles. Yeah. Sorry, Nazi yeah. eagles. Uh, so anyways, not cool. But like also, near- like just a train. Like just don't. Yeah. A train is the wrong. It's just uh, right. it's a bad idea. Yeah. But, but it ugh. suggests a certain amount of 
inability to appreciate the real scope of what this idea could be, both in terms of the discomfort and horror it can produce in people uh, and the things that you could explore. And I mean, they, they apparently, according to this really interesting New York Times piece about the creation of the world of this this series, I mean, they faced similar problems when they were trying to shoot this thing. They would go to like buildings and factories and be like, oh, can we shoot our Amazon series? Here's a, a zillion dollars. And people would say, okay, what do you need to do? And they'd say, oh, we want to hang a swastika on the front of your building. <laughs> and then people would say, oh, no, thank you. I don't want your zillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the show is called The Man in the High Castle. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. Check it out. Laura Miller, uh, as always, it's a total pleasure having you on the show. Please come back soon. I will. Thanks. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Today's show is brought to our listeners by The Message, an original and awesome science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. All right, moving on. The Westboro Baptist Church is best known for picketing the funerals of American servicemen and women with placards reading, God hates fags and thank God for dead soldiers. It is essentially a hate cult devoted to acts of public cruelty. Conversion via Twitter is a New Yorker story. It tells the story of Megan Phelps Roper, the granddaughter of the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church, and her own internal civil war between her own nature, which is essentially open and friendly, and the ideology of unremitting hate and cruelty that is her family's legacy. And interestingly, how this conflict played out in public on Twitter, we're joined by Adrian Chen, the author of the remarkable piece, truly remarkable piece. He's a freelance writer extraordinaire and has long been considered a friend of this program. Adrian, welcome back. Thank you. Also a former Slate intern. <laughs> Most of the top of your resume. <laughs> Speaking of acts of hate and public cruelty of former Slate intern, <laughs> our heart. Anyway, welcome. Um, uh Adrian, uh, talk a little bit about how you stumbled upon this story. I'm assuming that you were familiar with uh, this young woman's Twitter account and um, how you got in contact with her and and, uh, what interested you in this story. Well, yeah, it was appropriately enough. It was through Twitter that we kind of connected at first. I think it was a couple months after she publicly came out that she had left the church. Um, She followed me on Twitter, and we have tried to figure out why she followed me out of all the people, but I think it had something to do with um, this comedian Jake Fogelnest, who um, we're kind of mutual Twitter acquaintances with, and she used to fight a lot with when she was in the in the church. Um, and you know, I would tweet with him, so so we think that might have been that. But you know, we uh, she followed me, and then a few months after that, she tweeted that she was in New York City. Um, I direct messaged her and said, you know. 
uh, I see you're following me. Like, I'd love to meet up and, you know, maybe interview you. I was working for Gawker at the time. And so we met at the uh, at the Natural History Museum. <laughs> <laughs> or no, sorry, it was it was at the Met. And, you know, talked for a while. And I, I mentioned that I wanted to, to interview them, but I don't think they were ready at that point. And so it was just a long process of kind of uh, convincing them and uh, them getting mm-hmm. ready to do it. By them, you mean her and her younger sister. Yes. Right. And Adrian, for people who haven't read this remarkable story, describe briefly what her persona originally was on Twitter before her conversion. That's where really where the story begins, how completely this woman accepted and parroted the, uh, the party line of her family's church. Yeah. She thought that her miss- mission on Twitter and in life was to spread the news of God's righteous judgments. So in general, that meant anything bad that happened to anyone outside of the church, uh, she would rejoice in it. She would tweet passages of the scripture that, you know, backed up uh, that this was God's punishment to people. You know, she was very uh, anti-gay, very anti, you know, vocally anti-abortion, and just kind of would go out of her way to kind of pick fights with people and tell them that they were going to hell. So, Adrian, the thing that I found, I think, most moving about this story is not just the way that she reconsidered her views and the way that she connected with people who she had spent years on Twitter fighting with or, or, or I mean, or condemning to hell, but this sort of broader view of the online world as different from, I think, uh, the way a lot of people think of it. I think a lot of people think of it as as existing mostly of the kinds of interactions that that she was partaking in for years in her role at Westboro as spreading hate or um, or demonizing other people or viewing them as less than human um, and treating them that way. But in fact, what it showed me is that the online world is just this incredible way for people not only to be exposed to viewpoints opposed to their own, but to see those viewpoints as being held by actual human beings who they care about. And I thought that was really refreshing and remarkable. Yeah, I I think that one thing that I I didn't really get to go into a lot was just how um, actually the fact that it was all online and that these people were kind of far away and she she imagined she would never meet them in person kind of allowed her to, you know, entertain more of an idea of, of who they were and to kind of let her guard down a little bit. So I think it it was, you know, not just that there were a lot of people out there who were being kind, but that this was a kind of, uh, you know, intimate, disarming setting in which she was interacting with them. That's interesting. So that it's, it was, in fact, the distance of them that allowed her to engage with them more humanly rather than... Because I, I feel like you usually hear the opposite. And, in fact, part of what her initial Twitter MO was seemed to be like, you guys are all just digital figments and and you're condemned to hell based on how you talk and what you say. Why do you think the distance was key? I don't know. I I think one thing that she told me was that when she was on the picket line, which is, you know, they're they're most famous for picketing, you know, soldiers of funerals. And she did hundreds of these throughout the years that and and that was kind of the um, most sustained contact she would have with people, you know, while preaching and that it was always very confrontational. It was always um, it was always this kind of, you know, one off thing where you would come together and shout at each other and then they'd go away or something and this was something where it was continuous and you know 
even when they weren't interacting, she could kind of see what their lives were like and she could kind of see them without the influence of the church, basically, and realize that, you know, they're not just always shouting kind of like disobedient sinners and that they're just kind of normal people. Right. When they weren't Mm -hmm. yelling at her on a a picket line, virtual or real, they were watching TV and doing other stuff and seeming to have Twitter friends and just being human. Yeah. 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 Pop culture. I mean, in addition, uh, Julie, I totally agree. The Internet plays this kind of salvific, unexpectedly salvific role in the story, as does pop culture. Right, Adrian? It's the death of um, uh, I'm going to forget her name. Brittany Murphy. Brittany Murphy. um, And also uh, someone introducing her to David Foster Wallace and Indie Rock that starts to turn this woman from, you know, kind of a hate spewing bot into an actual late adolescent human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she was always into um, pop culture and, and, you know, they weren't cut off from that or anything. But it seemed like, you know, that was almost one way that she could kind of let out these feelings that, that of sympathy and empathy in a way that was safe for her. You know, um, it, I talk about in the article how she was kind of, uh, she started this online romance almost with a a guy who she didn't know through words with friends. And she was in denial the whole time, but she was able to kind of latch onto these, you know, indie rock and, and literary fiction that he introduced her. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one thing I really liked and admired about the piece is how, um, not sympathetically, but but yeah, sympathetically, neutrally, you portray what it's like to grow up inside the Westboro Baptist Church. Obviously, they are like the cartoon villains of the modern age. Like <laughs> they're the the one group of people that everyone agrees is completely despicable and has behavior that seems just insane, deranged, hurtful, mean spirited, and deeply ungodly. No matter how secular or religious you are, in terms of the, the hurt it inflicts on suffering people, and yet. The piece starts with this sincere, smart young woman, very embedded in this world, which is the world she knows, taking very seriously the precepts she's been raised with and believing them deeply and considering them deeply. And I I thought that showed an empathy from the outside in, in a way that echoed her empathy in beginning to understand the world outside. And I think it really... It, it's it's a big part of what gives the piece its power. Well, I think one of the things that made me understand, you know, how unique her case was and, and how kind of exceptional she she was in the church was just talking to other people in the church who had left and kind of what, the reasons why they left. And a lot of the people that I talked to, you know, they would leave when they were 18 and they said basically they just wanted to do normal things and, you know, they got sick of obeying all these rules you know, meanwhile, Megan had this really intense kind of philosophical breakdown that was going on that she, you know, thought about a lot. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, these people who left are basically saying, and, you know, they'll admit it, they'll just say, I just didn't, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, Megan's kind of, you know, very serious engagement with these things actually led her to stay with the church much longer than the people who were just kind of didn't take it very seriously. Yeah, and this kind of this this points up a really interesting somewhat more hidden aspect of the story in the piece, which is that even though they were devoted to acts of publicity, uh, outrage provoking publicity, internally there was at least some attempt at doctrinal consistency 
as crazy as it was. And she was that kind of classic young person who takes what elders, authoritative elders say seriously and literally, and then philosophically debates them within her own conscience in a way that's vastly more serious than those elders probably even want, right? And one of the first kind of little leverages from the outside world that begins to open up her conscience more widely is simply an Orthodox Jew who begins to uh, argue with her and debate with her on on matters of sort of Talmudic interpretation because he, in fact, is able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew, which she can't do. So she, this 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 man who's completely ideologically and religiously opposed to her, nonetheless is able to get into her conscience and begin to expand it simply because she's taken ideas uh, seriously. Yeah, the the role of Judaism is really interesting, and it keeps swapping up, as you said. <laughs> and um, it seemed to me that when they changed um, focus at in around, I think, 2009, uh, to focus a lot on Jews, um, they hadn't really before. And I got the sense that they had for so long been targeting other Christians, and they kind of knew exactly what they were dealing with, basically, they knew exactly how other Christians weren't adhering to the Bible in the way they were, and, and so they knew all these things. But um, it seemed to me that like when they started targeting Jews, it was almost like a throwing off balance. It was a little familiar, but also a little weird. And I think that was enough to kind of shake something loose, uh, at least in the, the beginning. This piece contained a lot of surprises for me. I think it's surprising in the way you think about how empathy works on the Internet. It's surprising in the way you think about how hate works on the internet. Um, it's surprising to understand what this young woman's life was like. But I'm curious what most surprised you as you went through and reported the story. Well, I when I came to the story, I had read some interviews she had given about it, and it seemed like a very pretty simple story where she met this guy, Jewish, uh, the Jewish blogger, David Ab- Abbottball. He made this argument that kind of put a seed of doubt in her mind, um, basically about whether gays should have the death penalty or not. And he said that they shouldn't because it would be hypocritical with their message of repentance, because if you killed a gay person when they sinned, how would they repent? And she she kind of thought that was a valid point. And, you know, according to the stories that I had read, basically that seed of doubt kind of just grew over time uh, until she couldn't take it anymore and left. And when I started reporting it, you know, that was one thing, but it was very clear to me that if that was the one thing, she would have never left. And there were all these other things that that happened both inside and outside of the church. And a lot of it did have to do with this kind of intellectual understanding and kind of changing beliefs. But a lot of it was a more organic, just kind of you know, growing up, seeing other things, it, it's hard to say that she was just, you know, lost her faith because it was a very complex, multi-step thing that happened. And so that that really surprised me how how many aspects there were to it. It's a really nuanced and beautiful portrait of all of those factors, I think. Yeah, here, here. It's an incredible piece of writing, Adrian. Um, and I want to encourage people to not only to read it, but read it till the end. I don't want to give anything away, but the ending is as beautiful a button to a New Yorker or a long-form piece of writing that I've encountered in a really, really long time. Uh, Adrian, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about conversion via Twitter. You're a terrific story for The New Yorker. Adrian Chen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. I'm glad you guys liked it. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dan Kois. What do you have? Uh, I have two separate and related endorsements. Um, the first is uh, a novel, a science fiction novel that came out this summer by Kim Stanley Robinson called Aurora. Um, it's about a starship sent to a separate solar system in an attempt to colonize it. I had the novel, but had not started it. And the reason I started it was because of a truly exceptional essay that Robinson wrote for Boing Boing, which is called Our Generation Ships Will Sink. And Kim Stanley Robinson is a really remarkable science fiction writer. I love his work a lot. It's based not only on a, a really rigorous understanding of technology and, of course, a really great imagination, but it is also based on a deep respect and love for the earth and for natural and biological processes. And so his essay for Boing Boing is about why it is essentially impossible for humans to successfully travel to other solar systems, why it will probably always be impossible for the entirety of human history. And so it's a really gripping and convincing and, and a little bit disheartening essay for those of us who sort of had dreams that one day humans would colonize the stars and, and humanity would make its mark on the universe. Um, but he really makes a, a great and fascinating argument about the, the physical problems that traveling such great distances would cause, the fact that true light speed is is physically impossible that it's never going to happen that the best we'll probably ever be able to accomplish is one tenth light speed which means you've got a, a multiple centuries journey and a a five to ten generations worth of humans journey to do it the biological problems the ecological problems the fact that if you basically create a starship in which humans are going to live for 200 plus years you're creating an island with a number of resource problems that that island will face over the course of that time and psychological, the fact that, that these humans will have to deal with the psychology of living in this environment and the fact that they had been consigned to this fate by their ancestors who set foot on this ship 200 or 300 years ago. It's a really incredible essay. It's beautifully written, as all of Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson stuff is. And it led me to the novel, which is also a, a truly fascinating story of what I would say it's a story of natural and technological systems that are taxed beyond their capabilities. And it's a, a story of how human ingenuity may possibly be able to overcome some of those obstacles. They're both really great. I recommend them wholeheartedly. God, they both sound amazing. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, my recommendation pales somewhat, maybe a lot in comparison to Dan's <laughs> philosophical Sorry. meditation on lifetime being in the future of our species. Uh, I want to recommend some workout clothes. <laughs> and also lounging clothes so it's kind of a twofer as well and the brand outdoor voices makes really awesome cool comfortable workout and lounge around clothes and as we are getting to lounge around indoor season where one should spend one's weekend in soft clothes and fuzzy slippers like making chili and reading and and enjoying the the great indoors. I know I'm recommending a brand called Outdoor Voices. Uh, the stuff that they make will help you in your endeavors indoor and out. Uh, we'll put a link on our show page to the particular kind of pocket-having sweatpants that I like from them the most. But They have great colors. They have these beautiful heathered materials. Their yoga leggings are terrific. Uh, throw your Lululemons out the window. Get stuff from Outdoor Voices. That is my recommendation. They would be great on a starship, I think. If you wore those clothes on a starship, you might be able to help humanity persist. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what like tech propensities the fabrics have. I'm sure there's. I'm sure they have some. They just sure, kind of, yeah. they look nice and are comfortable. Is my main endorsement of them. Yeah. Um, 
That was awesome, Julia. <laughs> Sorry. <gotta> <laughs> it's the thing that, I was self, that was self-surpassing in the highest degree. <laughs> uh, don't what know. about you, Steve? What would you like to recommend? I would like to endorse the Lord cover of the replacement song Swingin' Party, which my 12-year-old daughter just Ooh. introduced me to. It's such a freaking great song off the album. Tim, I didn't know Lord covered it. She does a really good job. I'd also like to say that I'm not gay, or maybe I am gay. I'm not 100% sure. But if I could take the essence of Freddie Mercury and distill him into a kind of lotion and squirt it on my hairless chest and rub it in, it would make me utterly ecstatic but as a closest replacement my daughter also introduced me to the song mr fahrenheit which i had never heard before also known as don't stop me now i think it's fucking awesome i love that song and then fine was that just too weird <laughs> it definitely was weird but i think in a good way <laughs> okay good and then um finally uh i want to as i get older i find uh, that I find Shakespeare performed more gripping, um, more emotionally engaging, and uh, more moving, which is very odd. Uh, you know, it can be very distancing, I think, especially as you get to know it younger, you're supposed to be reverent toward it. It's often very hard to follow. The language can be occasionally impenetrable. But over time, you just become familiar with the plays and their plots and most of their jokes and, and um, recondite humor and, and, and twists and on and on and on. And then, then, then just the sheer utter you know, wit and humanity of them starts to shine through. The other day, I went to see The Winter's Tale under circumstances that I now want to recommend, which is in Lenox, Massachusetts. This is geographically specific, but we'll expand in a moment. There's an organization called Shakespeare and Company, which uh, upholds the institution of William Shakespeare in the most honorable terms, uh, including going into all of the local public high schools and sponsoring Shakespeare productions that are then performed as a week or two week long festival in the late fall. I saw the uh, first time I'd ever gone to this, I saw The Winter's Tale there. It was the Chatham Public High School's uh, production of it under the supervision of Shakespeare and Company. It was as if you distilled all of what could be said is best about a football rally at a public high school into uh, onto a Shakespeare performance. I mean, the warmth and the spirit of it was incredible and interacted with the play really intimately and really interestingly and creatively. It was one of the best theater experiences I've ever, ever had. And I guess if I'm recommend, recommending something geographically unspecific, it's simply to understand that Shakespeare is this kind of all-encompassing institution for the English-speaking world that one can join at multiple points in one's own community or online. There are just literally I mean, maybe not literally, but there are millions and millions of ways in which to access this totality and make it your own. And and I just found a completely random one this past weekend, and and I it was it was a really lovely experience. So highly recommended. That's beautiful. Thank you, thank you, Dan. Thanks for coming in. You were a delightful um, sub for Dana. Dan's beautiful too. Is what you're Thanks, saying. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we're all beautiful, Julia. You're really beautiful, especially in those workout clothes. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for thanks, thanks for kicking that over from warm into creepy. That was good. <laughs> oh dear. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dan Coyce, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Tonight, I'm gonna have myself 
feel good time I feel alive 